Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 18, the book of Matthew, chapter 5, the conclusion. Despite the happy fiction that in Yeshua's day, the Jewish people practiced a religion that was pure and Torah-driven, in reality, what they practiced was a religion based mostly on tradition. Naturally, the Jews were not a monolithic culture. They weren't several million bodies that shared one religious mindset. Two major divisions of the Jewish religion and culture existed that for the sake of simplicity we'll call Judaism. One which was observed by the small minority of Jews who lived in the Holy Land. The other, which was observed by the overwhelming majority of Jews that lived in the diaspora. That is, this is the 95% of all living Jews at that time who chose to reside in foreign nations. Now, there were numerous debates and arguments over which traditions taught by the various Jewish religious authorities ought to be obeyed. So, where one lived, and who one listened to had much to do with the specific traditions that were taught and accepted. Now, Christ dealt primarily with Holy Land Jews. On the other hand, Paul, the most prolific and influential writer in the New Testament, dealt primarily with the Diaspora Jews. So, what they each said how they each approached the matter of who exactly Yeshua was and what he represented and how that might affect one's life and decisions, it was all tailored to their audience. Now, in no way am I implying that what they each taught was in conflict, but rather when reading the Gospels and then the Epistles, it can at times seem so because the way things are worded and what the issues that are dealt with had everything to do with where they were, who they were talking to. In the Sermon on the Mount, Yeshua was talking to a mixed audience of Jews, but most were Holy Land residents, and I'm defining the Holy Land at that time as consisting mainly of Judea and the Galilee, although in a sense Samaria, the people of Samaria should be included in that. Thus what we see Christ doing in His speech is trying to straighten out centuries of teaching and beliefs that were based on doctrines, traditions that had arisen, which had essentially pushed aside actual Biblical Torah teaching. This had resulted in a number of wrong understandings and so wrong behaviors and attitudes. This same reality is so very applicable to the church in our time. Now recently I listened to a podcast in which the author of a new book entitled A Church of Cowards, A Wake-Up Call to a Complacent Christian spoke to the moderator about the serious decline of Christianity in the West. 
a decline that began in Europe and has now infected America coast to coast. Now, I was far less struck with what Matt Walsh said, most of which, by the way, I applauded, than what he didn't say. He spoke of an endemic pessimism within the church that only offered what he called a cheap hope. Rather than focus on the joyful future God has ordained for all believers in His eternal realm, the sermons of today tend to focus on modern cultural and social justice issues, most of which, unfortunately, are politically motivated. According to the author, this cheap hope is also embodied in the infamous prosperity doctrine championed by such famous TV evangelists as Joel Osteen. He went on to say that the main problem lies with those who man the pulpit, and yet that itself is a reflection of the many who form the congregations. And in his most pointed comment, he said the issue of marriage in general, gay marriage in specific, has greatly damaged the church, perhaps beyond the ability to repair it. But he never once mentioned or even alluded to the place and the authority of the Bible in modern Western Christianity. Never did he use the Holy Scriptures as his source for his own beliefs, nor did he discuss how the words of the Bible are taught and interpreted among various church branches and denominations, especially as concerns gay marriage and gay ministers. And therein is the elephant in the room that is either ignored or denied by the church at large such that the Bible truly isn't even on the radar of a writer whose concern is the demise of the church in America. The sad reality is that the Bible is either not taught or passages are often lifted and quoted completely out of their context, or its words are given a spin that negates their actual plain meaning in order to uphold a particular denomination's faith doctrines or social worldview. My point is this. Traditions are merely another way of saying doctrines. Traditions and doctrines are two ways of saying the same thing. But what they are not is Holy Scripture. Christians enjoy criticizing Jews for basing their faith around traditions, while at the same time passionately defending their Christian faith that is also based around traditions and doctrines. And in both cases, doing so has led the church and the synagogue far off the mark, because the Holy Scriptures are not only little known by the congregations or today even the leadership, it has also weakened both institutions. And now the basis for decision making has more to do with the church maintaining its own existence and being accepted by the secular world than in dispensing and standing up for God's truth. The result's devastating. 
and indeed it has led us into the abyss. Now the most powerful of ocean-going vessels becomes vulnerable and perhaps useless when they lose their rudders. The rudder for the Christian church has always been and must always be the Bible, the whole Bible, not just some favored sections of it. But today that rudder has been traded in for a steering mechanism made of man-made doctrines and the preaching of politically based principles that come and go with the seasons as well. Yeshua in his Sermon on the Mount was dealing with that same problem. It's the reason that he spoke to his fellow Jews in the manner that he did and on the subjects that he chose. So, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read from verses 38 to the end of the chapter. Matthew 5, 38 to the end. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, you'll find it on page 1229. That's 1229, starting at verse 38. You have heard that our fathers were told, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you not to stand up against someone who does you wrong. On the contrary, if someone hits you on the right cheek, let him hit you on the left cheek too. If someone wants to sue you for your shirt, let him have your coat as well. If a soldier forces you to carry his pack for a mile, carry it for two. When someone asks you for something, give it to him. When someone wants to borrow something from you, lend it to him. You have heard that our fathers were told, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Then you will become children of your Father in heaven, for He makes His sun shine on good and bad people alike. He sends rain to the righteous and the unrighteous alike. What reward do you get if you love only those who love you? Why, even the tax collectors do that. And if you are friendly only to your friends, are you doing anything out of the ordinary? Even the Gentiles do that. Therefore, be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 38, in rapid sequence, Christ speaks to four issues that are all interrelated. First of all, a person is insulted. Second, a person is taken to court. Third, someone insists that a person is to be involuntarily pressed into service to them. Fourth, a person is asked to give something to another who asks for it. Now, before we discuss that first issue, notice something critical. None of these issues involves criminality. And in most cases, sin is not really the issue. In fact, every one of these cases is about a relatively small personal matter. The initial thing we must address is the reading of verse 38 itself. Now, notice the complete Jewish Bible version. You have heard that our fathers were told, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Now, here is how we find that same statement 
and nearly all other English Bible translations. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. Notice the words, our fathers, that we find in the complete Jewish Bible are not there in the original Greek. Rather, it is a rather ambiguous source that Christ refers to when He said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Our fathers is an assumption that David Stern assigns from some earlier passages, and I don't think it's an assumption that ought to be made. Rather, Jesus seems to be speaking of the issue of an eye for an eye in the form of it being a well-known and common saying as opposed to a formal Torah law. It is not unlike the typical Christian saying that cleanliness is close to godliness. It sounds like something from the Bible, but it isn't. In general, it is accepted among Christians as authentic and true without much thought. So, believers tend to follow the concept in whatever way seems good to them. So the saying and the common understanding among the people about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is a general belief about the biblical principle of proportional justice. However, the issue is this, in what life situations is this principle to be applied? The next words of the passage say that the life situation that Jesus is talking about is when someone does you wrong. Now, most other Bible versions will refer to a person who is or is doing evil. The Greek word being translated as evil is poneros. It means bad or troublesome or full of annoyances or hardships. So we shouldn't equate the use of the word as meaning the issue, uh, meaning the same thing rather as wicked in the spiritual sense, such as being in league with the devil. Rather, this is more like the troublesome neighbor next door who always seems to be causing some kind of upset or another. Then Christ gives us an example of what he means. That is, of itself, also a principle, by the way, when he says one of the most memorable and regularly quoted lines in the Bible. He says, if someone hits you on the right cheek, let him also hit you on the left. And for the most part, sermons on this passage are about Jesus being a pacifist. And therefore, what Christ wants is for us not to resist a criminal act upon us. This is an incorrect interpretation. First, the context is not about criminality. Rather, it's about not taking personal vengeance. Personal vengeance. In that day, taking personal vengeance for many perceived wrongs done against you was rather usual. You know, a person couldn't call 911 and make a complaint if they were being harassed or threatened. Today in the West, one cannot handle the simplest of wrongs done against us in any other lawful way but by calling the police or maybe hiring a lawyer. I want to remind you once more, none of this is about criminal acts. This is not about getting stabbed or having an animal stolen. 
the example given of being slapped on the cheek in our day would amount to assault and battery. It is considered an aggressive attack. But in Jesus' day, it was not seen as an act of criminal violence, so it was not something unlawful. Rather, a man having his face slapped was done to him to inflict shame upon him. Middle Eastern society then and now is based on the fundamental concepts of shame and honor. It is about a culture being built upon a societal status. In a shame and honor society, maintaining one's social status of honor, well, that's paramount. That's everything. How one can be muddied and reduced to a status of shame is complex because to our Western minds, many of the reasons for being shamed make little sense to us. See, what we have to keep in mind is that a person who has been shamed will stop at nothing to regain a status of honor. Personal revenge is built into the shame and honor system. It is expected that a person who has been shamed will do harm. They will murder, if need be, to remedy the problem. Now, we've all heard the term honor killing. This is precisely about an act of murder perpetrated within the cultural system of shame and honor. Often a person who is living in a status of shame will kill the one perceived as having caused them to lose their honor, knowing they may personally pay the ultimate price for it. But it doesn't matter, because if that act relieves their shame and restores their honor in the eyes of their family and peers and community, well, it was worth it to them. They are even admired for it. That is the high level of importance placed upon it in a shame and honor society in Christ's day and continuing today in most Muslim societies. Now, interestingly, the law of Moses was designed to create a society based on guilt and innocence, not on shame and honor. Therefore, the Torah does not allow personal retribution because of the loss of social status, because of being shamed. Still, Israel was heavily influenced by their past and especially by their neighbors. And those neighbors had no such restrictions on personal vengeance for the sake of restoring their honor. God ordained what was sin and what was criminal, and He ordained the proper punishment, if any, for it. In Leviticus 19.18, we find the law to love your neighbor as yourself. This formed the basis for disallowing revenge for being shamed. Proverbs says this in Proverbs 4, 29, uh, 24, 29. Don't say, I'll do to him what he did to me. I'll pay him back for what his deeds deserve. And in another place in the Torah, we read, this is in Deuteronomy 32, 35, vengeance and payback are mine for the time when their foot slips. For the day of their calamity is coming soon, their doom is rushing upon them.
What these Old Testament verses tell us is that the concept of turning the other cheek, that is, not seeking revenge for being shamed, was not at all new. Rather, it was a basic Torah concept. So, why did Yeshua see the need to address such an already ancient concept? Because Jewish society had become a tradition-based society that ran on man-made precepts created by the religious authorities. Precepts that they said were proper interpretations of the Torah. And because the Romans inflicted their cultural ideas of justice upon Jewish society for more than a century before the time Yeshua was born, much of it simply became the norm for the Jews without them really thinking about the source of it. The Jews didn't have a reservoir of Torah knowledge to draw upon. They didn't have Bibles in their homes. They mostly knew what their society said was traditionally right and wrong, and what the doctrines taught by the rabbis said. Now, the next example of the behavior that Yeshua expects from his followers is in verse 40, and it's the case of someone being sued in court. The person wants your shirt in payment. Christ says, give it to him, and give him your coat as well. The principle that is being taught is to achieve reconciliation rather than to exact revenge, even if it means giving up more than one should reasonably have to give up in order to reconcile. Now, why use the illustration of being sued for one's garments? That's a rather unlikely occurrence even then. In Yeshua's time, a Jewish commoner wore two basic garments, an inner and an outer. The inner was a tunic-like article of clothing that was pretty standard. The outer garment was called a simla in Hebrew. It was the more valuable and the more important of those two garments. And while its use evolved over the centuries, in Christ's day it served as both an overcoat and as a blanket. Generally speaking, a man's outer garment could not be confiscated for non-payment of a debt or for a punishment. However, there were situations when the same law might be used as collateral for a short-term loan. In that case, then it could be held by the lender during the daytime, but it had to be returned to the borrower borrower in the evening. The point being that this outer garment was an especially important one to its wearer, because among the common and poorer Jews, it was what kept them from exposure to the elements. So the answer to the question of why Yeshua chose this particular case example is not that it was a new law, but rather it was an ancient one. We find it in the Torah, in the book of Exodus, Exodus 22, verses 25 and 26. If you take your neighbor's coat as collateral, you are to restore it to him by sundown, because it is his only garment. He needs it to wrap his body. What else does he have in which to sleep? 
Moreover, if he cries out to me, I'll listen, because I am compassionate. The bottom line of what Yeshua is teaching is that his followers are to obey the law of Moses by acting as the Father acts, with compassion towards humanity. In verse 31, uh, rather 41, verse 41 is the third example of what a follower of Yeshua is supposed to look like and behave like. It is that if a follower is pressed to go a mile, they should go too. Now, what the exact context of this is, it's not stated in the passage. David Stern inserts the word soldier to describe the person who is the one who's demanding something. That word soldier is not there in the Greek manuscript. Rather, it is in the Greek hostis, which means whoever or whatever. It's non-specific. It characterizes no one in particular. Even so, the idea of being compelled to do something that would normally be against your will is the idea. Something that is perhaps even unreasonable or unfair. Now, even though the word soldier is not there. The circumstance of the times, when a Roman soldier could force a Jew to do pretty much whatever he wanted done, is either what Yeshua had in view, or at least it provided a pretty good illustration of the principle. Later in Matthew, we get an excellent example of this in, in chapter 27. In chapter 27, verses 30 to 32, we read, they spit on him and used the stick to beat him about the head. When they had finished ridiculing him, they took off the robe, put his own clothes back on him, led him away to be nailed to the execution stake. As they were leaving, they met a man from Cyrene named Shimon, Simon, and they forced him to carry Yeshua's execution stake. So if this is indeed about a Roman soldier ordering a Jew to carry something for him, it certainly meant even more. This principle is also about an authority over you of any kind, compelling you to do something that from a government or a legal standpoint they might have the right or the clout to do, no matter how unfair it might be. Rather than rebelling against it, as most might, and who would blame them, we as Christ followers must not only graciously comply, but we must do more than the minimum that is being required. Why is this? Because just as the innocent Yeshua hung on the cross and he had compassion for those guilty parties who hung next to him, and just as he also did not under a sound, he did not accuse or condemn those Roman soldiers who wrongly beat and whipped him, you know, what an impression Yeshua's behaviors and response must have made on all who witnessed and likely were the very perpetrators of the cruelties as well. You know, how many sinners have come to faith and an eternal salvation because of the witness of courage and grace shown by an innocent follower of Jesus in the face of pain and evil. The number may never be known. The fourth, the final case example is verse 42. Now, what might seem like two examples 
if someone asks you for something, if someone wants to borrow something, is really just one synonymous expression. Now, as I've demonstrated to you, none of these cases represents any kind of a departure from the Torah, but they must have represented a, 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 a departure of the current mindset from the tradition-based Judaism that most Jews practiced and they believed to be right. The Law of Moses states this in Deuteronomy 15 verses 7 and 8, If someone among you is needy, one of your brothers, in any of your towns in your land which Adonai your God is giving you, you are not to harden your heart or shut your hand from giving it to your needy brother. No, you must open your hand to him and lend him enough to meet his need and enable him to obtain what he wants. So, in this example we move from the realm of a person forcing you to do something involuntarily to the realm of voluntarily giving to the needy as essentially an almost knee-jerk reaction. Generosity was supposed to be a mainstay of Hebrew society. Having an evil eye or shutting your hand meant you were stingy. As in all ancient societies, most people were poor, and so the needy were everywhere, some because of illness or lameness, some because they were born into poverty, others because of financial misfortune. Regardless of the reason, the needy were to be given charity, they were to be cared for. Yeshua was encouraging the practice of giving. Now, verse 43 takes up the subject of love. And of course, it uses one of the two fundamental commandments of the Torah, the two that Yeshua called the greatest commandments, and he uses this as the basis for his discourse on the subject. As with verse 40, uh, rather 38, we find in the complete Jewish Bible this statement. You have heard that our fathers were told. In fact, the Greek manuscripts do not have the words our fathers there. Rather, the literal translation is, you have heard that it was said. Saying our fathers serves up the concept that these were the people who heard Moses speak long, long ago. That's not what's meant here. The idea is that what follows is a general expression, an expression that has been woven into the fabric of Jewish society, an expression that Jews believe is taken from the Torah, but in fact it's not. The expression Yeshua quotes is, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Nowhere in the Law of Moses, the Torah, or in the entire Tanakh, that's the Old Testament, are God's people taught to hate their enemies. So essentially what Christ quoted was a common belief, a common saying, but it wasn't true, so it needed correction. Let's be clear about this issue of hating enemies. While the Jews and, and we as believers are not to hate our personal enemies, we are to hate God's enemies. If we were to love the enemies of God, we'd be given up on our loyalty to Him. How can we love what God hates? Or as Yeshua's teaching, how can we hate what God loves? The context and theme of these last several verses is 
personal vengeance. Since through four case examples, Christ has illustrated how his followers are to behave with our fellow man, he is showing how this behavior is to be based upon love as opposed to accepted social customs. A person's personal enemy is so far in chapter 5 defined as someone who has offended or shamed him. And Yeshua says, We're not to hate the offender or the one who shamed us. Now, why is Christ addressing this? Even though clearly Leviticus 19.18 teaches us that we are to love our fellow man and not hate him, and because Jewish traditions and social customs had perverted and overtaken Biblical Torah commandments and the people had been wrongly taught, so he needed to straighten it out. Matthew 15.9, the worship of me is useless because they teach man-made rules as if they were doctrines. Even in this statement of Jesus that came in another setting, he was not creating a new commandment of God, but rather was reestablishing an old one that had been overthrown by man-made doctrines. Listen to Isaiah 29, verses 13 and 14. Then Adonai said, Because these people approach me with an with their empty words, and the honor they bestow upon me is mere lip service, while in fact they have distanced their hearts from me, and their fear of me is just a mitzvah, a commandment of human origin. Therefore, I will have to keep shocking these people with astounding and amazing things until the wisdom of their wise ones vanishes and the discernment of their discerning ones is hidden away. You know, when will my beloved church ever learn and accept the truth of Jesus and the inspired words of Isaiah? We are a horribly fractured institution because of a failure to discern and to obey. It seems to be our human instinct to love the words of human doctrines while we ignore or shun the Word of God, the Holy Scriptures, Old and New Testaments. And what's our reward for doing this? Churches shutting down by the hundreds, denominations splitting, then splitting again, usually not over biblical truth, but over man-made doctrines. But worse, the effectiveness of personal witness has become largely ineffective because we prefer to just speak hollow words and hand out Christian tracts rather than to live and behave as Messiah has commanded us. People are turning away from Christ instead of running to Him, and that's on us. It's on all of us. So when Yeshua says in verse 4, but I tell you, love your enemies, he's not trying to establish his own new doctrine. Rather, he's trying to bring back the God-given biblical ordinance. And the first thing that such love does is to pray for those who persecute you. Remembering our discussion on the multidimensional word 
persecution. For those in Christ's audience, this more means to pray for those who offend and harass and shame and ridicule, not so much for those who do harm or violence against them. Although ideally, it includes all of these different levels of persecution. Now, I want to quote to you something from Davies and Allison's commentary on Matthew that is, well, it's most poignant concerning what Yeshua is teaching. Listen carefully to this. What does love mean? For Jesus, it is no longer primarily a quality of relationships within the fold, within the walls, which hold the dark and threatening powers at a distance. It is something which must must prove itself. It must prove itself in the engagement with that which is inimical, meaning hostile and threatening. This is why Jesus can seek out the tax collectors and the sinners. And yet, even this was not new. It was always God's will that all would see such love and be drawn towards Him as a result. There are numerous passages in the Tanakh that set the basis for what Christ is teaching. Isaiah 30, 18, Ezekiel 18, 23, Exodus 34, 6, so many more. Perhaps my favorite is Ezekiel 18, 32. <clears throat> I take no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, says Adonai Elohim, so turn yourselves around and live. And what will be the result of obeying this God principle of loving even your enemies? Yeshua says in verse 45, is that it will be that you will become as sons of God. The complete Jewish Bible says it this way. Then you will become children of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun shine on good and bad people alike. He sends rain to the righteous and to the unrighteous alike. Now, where the complete Jewish Bible and few other translations say children of your fathers, others more correctly say sons of your father because the Greek is huios and it means son, not children. This is an important distinction because Yeshua is once again reciting a Torah principle taken from Deuteronomy 14.1. It is not something new and novel. You know, I once heard it put this way. To return evil for good is the devil's way. To return good for good, that's man's way. But to return good for evil is God's way. Therefore, just as God provides the light and power of the sun upon all mankind, not just a certain few. And because He provides life-giving rain upon those who are righteous in Him as well as to those who are not, then we must follow that example and give love even to those who don't love us. After all, says Jesus, what great reward will we receive for only giving love back to those who love us, even the hated tax collectors? at that time, considered by Jews as among the, the greatest sinners and the most despised of enemies, they're capable of returning love for love. 
And what good is it to be friendly only to our friends? That is, it doesn't take much virtue to love and be friendly to those inside your established family and your social circle, but it does take more determination and humility to love and be friendly with outsiders. Well, chapter 5 ends with a command that is essentially a summation. It's the bottom line, if you would, to what Christ has been teaching, and it is, be perfect. Just as your Father in Heaven is perfect. Now, is this a new commandment of Jesus? No. Leviticus 20, 26. Rather, you people are to be holy for me, because I, Adonai, I'm holy. I have set you apart from the other peoples so that you can belong to me. Without doubt, the meaning of Christ's words, to be perfect, attends to moral perfection. We say it again. It's about moral perfection. Yet, no doubt, nearly all the Jews listening to Yeshua would have thought they were attempting to practice moral perfection by following Jewish law, Jewish traditions. Most members of the church today and throughout church history think they are attempting to practice moral perfection by following their particular church's faith doctrines and traditions. But that moral perfection has been a moving target because the definition of what amounts to moral perfection has shifted and changed within the church within the winds of time. This is because the leadership of Christianity and Judaism have paid the most attention to the customs and the doctrines and the traditions of men while minimizing the Word of God. Therefore, the source and the definition of moral perfection for followers of Christ can only be devotion to doing the biblical law as led by the Holy Spirit He has empowered us with, and by using our, or rather basing our every thought, our every action on loving God with all of our essence and might, and loving our fellow human beings as we love ourselves. We begin Matthew chapter 6 next time.